Well, good morning, New Life Church. How are you holding up today? That was very precious of you. Very golf clappy. You good? Hey, last weekend, let me tell you something. Last weekend was a record weekend at New Life Church. We had 362 people get baptized at all eight of our congregations. It's unbelievable. It hadn't happened in the history of our church. That's the most that, that has ever happened in one weekend. And story after story after story, I see a woman of God right here who got baptized, just rising in the power of the Spirit. One of my favorite stories, though, I got to tell you, it happened at Manitou Springs. And you know, Manitou Springs, wild down there, right? Uh, Manitou, God is doing a beautiful thing in the spr Manitou Springs. And they have an old building that they rent and the floor, it just wouldn't be wise to baptize people, have a bunch of water up there, right? So they had to baptize people outside last Sunday. And we've got this tank and we warmed up the water. We did our best, you know, baptized four people and, and it was great. And Dr. Joe, the uh, pastor of the congregation at the end said, hey, everyone, can we just get, and this guy goes, oh, hold up, hold up. Hey, stop, we're not done yet. I got to get baptized. And he ripped his shirt off right there in the parking lot. And he goes, but I'm not getting baptized in that tank. That's too precious. You got to take me down to the creek where I'm getting baptized in the creek this morning. It's the mountain snow runoff creek in Manitou, 35 degree water. And the guy goes, don't put me in that thing. Take me down to the creek. And there was an Air Force guy. He goes, I do, I do cold therapy every day. I'm ready to baptize this boy, you know? So these two guys jump in the creek. And this Air Force guy goes, and now I baptize you today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the guy comes up screaming, shirtless. Everyone's going bonkers. Can we give God thanks for what he's doing all across our region? Can't make this stuff up, man. I, I'm so grateful. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn toward the back of the book. We're, we're starting a new series today in the book of 1 John. It's this little bitty letter that is so densely packed with such important teaching for us today. And we're gonna spend the next six, seven, eight weeks going through 1 John. If you don't have your Bibles, no problem, it'll be on the screen. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read you the first five verses of this book, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. Hear the word of the Lord from John the Elder. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now pause. The beginning. All of these listeners would have gone, wait, he's going back to Genesis 1? That which was from the beginning. This is a little boutique Bible knowledge for you. So it's Genesis 1, but it's also John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. There was nothing that was made that was not made through him. So the hearers, when John opens his letter with that which was from the beginning, would have been hearing Genesis 1 resonances and John 1 resonances. And here in 1 John, he says, let me tell you what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the capital W word of life. Who's he talking about? Jesus. And he goes on to say, the life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has now appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. 
so that also you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, we write this to make our joy complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Here's the message. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Can you say amen today, church? Lord, we pray because we need you. And I'll just be the first to confess as the preacher, I feel so inadequate for the task. I need you. I, I, may I decrease so that you might increase. If, if we're here to hear me talk, we've all wasted our time. But if God, you will take over these words and lift them up by the power of your spirit, we will have heard from you. Lord, we say we've heard so many competing storylines this week in the news and all around us and in the boardroom and looking at the economy. We've heard so much and we pray today that you would silence the noise. We pray that we would hear today from heaven. Jesus, come speak by the power of your spirit. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we pray these things today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. Who's writing this book? And why did they think this book should go in the New Testament? This book is written by John. It's 1 John. But many of us will immediately think John and James, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, John, the beloved disciple who reclined on Jesus that night when Jesus washed everyone's feet and then fed them the last supper. It's not that John. It's another John who was a disciple and he's known now at this point in his life as John the elder. So he was in Jerusalem. He was an eyewitness of the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But it's not John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's John the elder. He watched Jesus raise the adulterous woman up out of the dust and say, woman, where are your accusers? Now go and sin no more. He would have watched Jesus spit into the mud and put the mud on the blind man's eyes and say to him, receive your sight. So this John was an eyewitness. He was in the middle of the story. And now John has moved. Now, can you use your imagination with me and pretend we're in sort of a geography class? I don't have a map with me, but what I want to do is sort of create, I'll do it this way so you can see it on the screen. I, here's Jerusalem. Here is the Mediterranean Sea, right? Do you see what I'm talking about? Here's North Africa, Egypt, Jerusalem, Beirut, Antioch, and you're up into Asia Minor. He's over here in Ephesus, Turkey. Just across the water is Greece. And right here is the boot we call Italy. Are you tracking? Did I just do that okay? That was a pretty decent, pretty decent lesson right there. This whole preaching thing doesn't work out. Maybe I could be a geography teacher. So he's not here in Jerusalem where it all happened. He was there, but now he's up here in Ephesus, Turkey. And so he is 1,100 miles away from where the story broke out. He's also 60 to 75 years later 
than when the story broke out. So he's writing this at the earliest in 95 AD, probably closer to 110 AD. Let's just say Jesus ascended in 35, 33, 35 AD, right? So 60 to 75 years away, which means there's a great geographical distance from where it happened, 1,100 miles. And there's also a great chronological difference from when it happened, 60 to 75 years later. So what we need to see is that most of the eyewitnesses would have been dead. They're dead. All the people who were running around with Jesus on the dusty roads of Palestine, when he raised the dead and when he cast out the demons and when he fed the 5,000, all of that energy had died down because those people had died. They put him in the grave. But this story of Jesus, the resurrected one, was just now sweeping from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the uttermost bounds of the earth. So these people are 1,100 miles away and 60 to 75 years away from the moment when it happened. And now... John starts to teach them about the person of Christ. Section number one of this first chapter, the person of Christ. And John uses very sensory, physical, tactile language. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at and our hands have touched this. We proclaim, do you hear the physicality? Like Jesus was a man and we saw him and we heard him and we shared meals with him and we watched him raise that Jesus was a real man. Now, We might kind of read this with hindsight and we go, yeah, so what's the big deal? Well, think about being 1,100 miles away from when it happened. There's no technology. There's no newspapers. The story was at risk of dying. The story was at least at risk of being perverted and changed. And John indeed says that many deceivers have come among you to try to lie to you about Jesus. There's a crisis going on in the Ephesian church. These people who are so far away in time and in distance, there's, there's these teachers that were coming through who were borrowing Jesus and perverting his message so that those people would no longer worship Jesus, but their followers would now come worship their little sect and bring their money with them. They're borrowing Jesus because Jesus was a real figure in time and they couldn't say that Jesus didn't exist. But what they started to do was to pervert the message of Jesus. And we see in 2 John, verse 7, what that perversion looked like. John says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world today. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, what? In the flesh. So he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've seen with our eyes and we've heard with our ears and we've touched with our hands like he was a real man. He's the real God who came among us. They hung him up on a real cross and put him in a real tomb. He wants us to see the physicality, the personhood of Christ, because the deceivers have come saying that Jesus Christ was not God in the flesh. And he says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist big language here from John. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's not here to play like these deceivers who have tried to infiltrate the Ephesian church to pervert the message of Jesus and to lead people away from worship of Jesus to worship of their sect so that these people can make a dollar off of the story of Jesus. John says such person is a deceiver 
and the Antichrist. He wants to first root us in the reality of Jesus, the God who became man, the God who moved among us, because these teachers were saying, yeah, Jesus was a thing. He was a moment in history, but he was sort of an apparition. He was sort of a spirit being floating through the ether and just kind of a nice teacher, but sort of a robe rabbi that doesn't really stand up in history. And Jesus, what they were trying to do was take the story of Jesus that was so strong and minimize it and decenter it and push it to the edges and disparage Jesus so that they could become important figures. And John says, Jesus was because that which was from the beginning, Genesis one, Jesus was there. When God said, let there be, Jesus was God's light. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was, John says he was the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who was and is and is to come. The deceivers were trying to minimize Jesus and John was trying to say, this is God and he came among us. Section one, the person of Jesus. Can you say amen? Section number two. What John wants us to see is the work of Christ. He's shown us the person of Christ, the real physical God who came, who actually did miracles, who preached the Sermon on the Mount. We, we know about the person of Christ from the first section. But the second section that John leads us into is the work of Christ. Now, what is the work of Jesus all about? What was his ministry for? What did Jesus actually do? What was he trying to say? What was the purpose of God becoming flesh and moving among us? I'll put in front of you two ideas here about the work of Christ. First, the work of Christ is to live the life of the kingdom in front of us. The work of Christ is to live the life, to embody it, to show us what the kingdom looks like in real personhood, in real time. You want to know what God does with his enemies? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God feels about the poor? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God feels about the powerful who step on the heads of the poor so that they can build their empires? Look at what Jesus does with the powerful. You want to know how God uses his words? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God does with his enemies? Go to Good Friday and stand at the foot of the cross and listen to the Son of God say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the work of Christ. He comes to live the life of the kingdom in front of us to show us the way. Do you know that there was not one person who was caught in their sin that left the presence of Jesus feeling like an idiot? Do you know who Jesus quarreled with the strongest? People who stood on stages like me. Religious professionals who wanted to be important, who wanted to go through the city streets and pray their prayers and everyone come to them and sort of kiss the ring. Jesus went after those bros. But do you know who he lifted up out of the dust? Woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
the poor and the fragile and the disenfranchised and the misplaced and and the underrepresented and the under-resourced. Do you know what Jesus does with these people? He brings them into the center. He stands them up. He dignifies them. He looks them in the eye. He even looks at the powerful and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down here, bro, because I'm going to go to your house today and I'm going to get you set right. And that evening before dinner was over, Zacchaeus had been, he had been taking advantage of people, stealing their money. And he said, I'll pay it back four times what I stole because the kingdom of God has come in this house tonight. When people come into the presence of Jesus, they don't leave embarrassed. They don't leave shamed. They don't leave rebuked. They don't leave feeling less. They leave having been made more. John says the work of Christ is to live the life of the kingdom in front of us. And here's what he says about Jesus. This is the message we have heard from him. And we declare to you, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Have you ever been around someone who was just radiant with holiness? Have you ever been around someone who just made you feel safe? Have you ever been around someone who was clean? Have you ever been around someone who, when they laid their hands on you, it was like holy touch. It was as if Jesus was laying his hands on you. I think about a lady here in the congregation that I've known for 17, 18 years, Carla Willis. Carla and Colin, Colin, Colonel Willis was here in the first service, served in our military for 30 years, just as decent and honorable a man as they come. And he way out kicked his coverage when he married that woman. Like you talk about, like she, he's a stallion and she is just excellent. And they've been married 48 years and she has a little, she's an artist. She has an art room down in her basement and she also has a prayer room down in her basement. And you know how she gets up in the morning? She goes downstairs with her coffee and with her Bible and she sits in that comfy chair and she begins to read the scriptures and say, come Holy Spirit. Oh, I welcome you here today. It's 6 a.m. Come Holy Spirit. I worship you, almighty God, there is none like you. I worship you, O Prince of Peace, that is what I long to do. I give you praise, for you are my righteousness. I worship you, almighty God, for there is none like you. And Jesus, I pray today that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. This is is up in Monument in the trees. Nobody knows what's going on in that basement at 6 a.m. I worship you. I bless you. I praise you. You know what happens in a room like that? The glory of the Lord falls. And you know what also happens? Someone who sits in that presence for 48 years, like she's done 50 plus years, she begins to be filled with light. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And Carla, she spent her life in the presence of Jesus who is light. And so what does Carla look like? Light. And she'll get up from that place in the morning and she'll come to church or she'll walk through, she's walking through King Supers and everywhere she goes, people are bumping into the light and the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the kindness of Jesus. And she's someone who bump into you and she, every time we see her, she says, I was praying for you and Lisa this morning because you're on our list. And that wasn't some, oh yeah, I'm praying for you, brother, praying. No, 
I was praying for you and Lisa this morning. And that's real when it's Carla Willis saying it. Friends, have you ever been with someone who is the sort of the, the, the radiance of God's light in the world and how beautiful that is? I'm looking at Susan right here. The radiance of God's light right here in, in this section 12. There's something about someone who dwells in the presence of the God who is light. And if Susan is like this and if Carla is like this, this room is filled with people who live God's radiance. How much more was Jesus? Do you know Jesus never once manipulated anybody? What? Like manipulation is like the rules of the game of the world that we live in. You got to kind of work it. And, hey, the people who always say, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I got you. I'll take care of you. I got you, man. Don't even worry about it. I'll take care of you. I'm good, I'm good to do business. With Just take care of me. Don't say anything. You don't have to say it. The more words, the less truth. People who are working it and trying to scheme and trying to rise, the, you know, rise in this world. And Jesus just stands there as God's unadulterated light. God's unfiltered love. God's unbroken communion. And Jesus is that light. And I want you to know that when Jesus comes among us, the, the, the work of Christ is to live the life of the kingdom in front of us so that we can see what it's like to treat our enemies well. So that we can see what it's like to live in communion with the Father. So that we can see what it looks like to stretch our arms out for the life of the world and to take up our cross and deny ourselves and the fruitfulness that comes from that. Jesus comes first to live the life of the kingdom in front of us. The second bit of the work of Christ what is Jesus' ministry about? The work of Christ is, yes, to live the life, but it's also to forgive the lack of the life of the kingdom within us. You see this? Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is God's way and truth and life. Jesus is the light, but he also comes to forgive the lack of the life of the kingdom within us. And John, this is where he picks up this theme, one of the greatest themes in the entire book of First John. Is forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. He is the atonement for our sin. He is the one who's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He is the one who never rejects the humble, but he receives them and forgives them. And he goes on to say, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he goes on to say, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the word of God is not within us. Jesus comes to forgive the lack of the life of the kingdom within us. And so our job is to humble ourselves. Our job is to pray. Like you can, you, you, you can refuse to talk about sin. We don't, let's just name that we don't like to talk about sin. It's uncomfortable for us. We're, you know, those ancient people were a superstitious lot and they didn't have technology and they didn't have great medical care and they didn't have access to what we have today. We're more enlightened and, and we've sort of evolved over time and we're good. We're, we're just kind of good. We're all good and we all get to, and I'll just say one of the great threats of our day is our gospel of cheap grace and unhinged self-expression. Don't make me preach today. 
Our gospel of cheap grace. Oh, it's fine. Just do whatever you want. Live your own truth. This God is just sort of that benevolent grandfather in heaven, or he's that slot machine in the cosmos that you just put your quarter in and he gives you whatever you need. And he would never tighten the screws on you. And he would never ask you to lay yourself down. He would never ask you to deny yourself and take up your cross. We live in a world that says, live your own truth and write your own story and be whatever you want to identify as any, in any given month. And it like, that was going on in John's day. And I'll tell you, First John is a very current book. Does anyone see people trying to decenter Jesus today? Oh, Jesus, oh, that was great. He was an old rogue rabbi teacher, but, but we're evolved and we're complex and we're first world Westerners and we're wise and we've got, no, we're trying to decenter Jesus and we're trying to tell people this gospel of cheap grace that says you can live however you want to live and God will be fine with it. And today John is calling us out. John is saying, no, come home. One of the great threats is our gospel of cheap grace and unhinged self-expression. Let me say it this way. You do not want me expressing myself. I promise you, you don't want me doing whatever. You don't want me living my own truth. You don't want me treating my enemies how I want to treat them at first blush. You don't want me going out into the streets saying whatever the first thing that comes to my mind. You don't want that. But here we are living in a world that is telling 8 billion people on the planet right now, live your own truth. And that's gotten us into the chaos that we've gotten into. What John is saying is deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Confess your sins, repent, open the scriptures, ask what God would have of you to do and bless people just like Jesus blessed people. You don't want me expressing myself out in the streets, but we today have turned the life of faith into a sort of choose your own adventure. Do whatever you wanna do and say whatever you wanna say, but John speaks of sin and confession, and thankfully he speaks of forgiveness. Do you know that no one who ever came to Jesus with humility was turned away? What does scripture say? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so today John calls us, he says the work of Christ is to live the life of the kingdom in front of us and to forgive the lack of the life of the kingdom within us. And so John says, confess and repent and humble yourselves and God will give you his forgiveness. The third section, as we prepare to come to a close, the third section in first John chapter one is the work of the believer. So we've got the person of Christ and we've got the work of Christ, but what is the work? What is the proper response of the believer? What's our job from this point forward? If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, if Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come, and if he's come to embody the kingdom in front of us, what's our proper response as the believer? John says this in verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. Our job is to walk 
in the light. Our job is to every morning, we're going to be imperfect. Absolutely. We're going to stumble and fall. Absolutely. But our job is to get up in the morning like Miss Carla and like Susan and like so many other saints in this place and to say, come Holy Spirit, fill me and wash me. And I repent of my sins. I confess Lord that I need you to cleanse me today. Our job is to walk in the light. And what happens when we walk in the light? He says, when you walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. Do you know that when I walk in darkness, the thing that I cannot do is look you in the eye, right? When I'm living a hidden life of sin, when I'm sneaking around, when I'm trying to keep my story straight because I've got so many different narratives out there and I'm living one way in private and another way in public, when I live like this, I cannot make eye contact with other believers. John says, when you walk in the light, you have fellowship, koinonia, communion, friendship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you. And so we as believers are called to walk in the light. I look over here at my friend Ryan, and there's a group of men that gather every Thursday night. It's a fire team here at our church. And Ryan is one of the guys that meets in this group. And I've been with this group, and they have been going for years. And you know what they do? They come, and they've got some food. And they catch up for the first 20, 30 minutes. How you doing? What's going on with the business? How's the fam? What? They just catch up. They take care of each other. They laugh. They tell stories. They know each other. They have fellowship one with another. And then they open up the scriptures. And, and, and they read something like 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And one of the guys will say, guys, I need you to pray for me. I've really been struggling with dot, dot, dot. And they all rally around each other and they lay hands on him. They speak life over him. And there's tears that flow often and, and there's repentance. And you know what happens when you repent? You begin to be able to look people in the eye again. And these guys have all gone, th gone through highs and lows and they're walking with each other and they're praying with each other and they're strengthening each other. Why? Because God is light and we've been called to walk in the light. And when we walk in the light, we can have friends. We can be clean. We can look around and keep our head high. And John calls us in to a life of humble repentance. I'll say to you today that repentance is a joy word. We often think of repentance with this like minor key, low brooding, dark, ominous tone repentance. Like God is the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, just ready to ready. To, no, repentance is a joy word. But we live in an age where no one wants to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Let me give you three phrases that will shape your life and will change the world around you. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Tattoo that on your forearm if you forget it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Te parents, if you have children, teach your children. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Well, I only want my kid to say it if they genuinely mean it. They will not ever genuinely mean it. You need to teach them. That's what discipleship is. This is called parenting. 
It's not free range spirituality that whatever my kid thinks to feel and just, I'll just let them know they will discover the wrong way. We are born selfish. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And we live in a world that says, uh, well, you know, my third grade teacher, uh, uh, she was giving out goldfish to all the other students and came to the end of the line. And I was the last one. I didn't get the goldfish. And that's where it all went wrong for me. Just... (laughs) I can trace it back. I've been through much counseling. I can trace it back to that Tuesday morning when I didn't have a spot on the carpet where she was reading me that beautiful picture book and I did not get the goldfish and my mom didn't scratch my back the right way when I was little and I just, it just broke me from the inside. And I wouldn't be a jerk. I am a jerk, but I wouldn't be a jerk if other people weren't jerks. And so my jerkness is just because everyone else is a jerk. And so I'm sorry that you were a jerk that turned me into a jerk. And we, we don't want to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And it's no wonder the world is fractured. It's no wonder we're living in such political tribalism. It's no wonder dialogue is broken down. It's no wonder we can't look each other in the eyes. It's no wonder there's the dad on the sideline at his third grade daughter's soccer game screaming like a rat. I wouldn't have been a jerk if that ref would have just got the call right. Settle down, Pele. She's in third grade. Settle down. But it's always someone else's fault. And we can't claim that it was our responsibility. We've got to blame shift and point fingers. And John the elder says, if you'll just confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, if you'll walk in the light as he is in the light, then you'll actually have friends. When you live like this, no one wants to be around you. When you live like this, you can't have communion even in your own home. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then you'll have fellowship and then you'll lay your head on the pillow at night and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed you from all sin. He says that the person of Jesus came and the work of Jesus was to live the life of the kingdom and to forgive the lack of the life of the kingdom within us. And now our responsibility, what's the work of the believer? The work of the believer is to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And he says, when you do that, you'll have a clear conscience. Jesus will have washed you. The world around you will work. Repentance is a joy word. My favorite hymn as I was growing up, and I still sing it to this day. We're going to sing it here in just a minute. The second verse goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friends, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this last little slide that I want to put up here in front of you, I'll say this. What you refuse to repent of remains with you when it could be nailed to the cross. Do you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you refuse to repent of remains with you 
when it could be nailed to the cross? Do you see the pathology of refusing to repent? Well, I'm, uh, uh, we're, we're grasping, we're holding on, we're, we're being rigid about our sins, we're hiding, we're collecting things, we're carrying burdens. And I'm saying to you, you do not want to spend the rest of your life carrying that. What we refuse to repent of remains with us when it could be nailed to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Repentance is a joy word. Friends, come home today. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Let Jesus cleanse you. Walk in the light and you'll have fellowship. Can you say amen today, church? Would you stand with me? Before we walk through the room and receive communion elements, I want us to turn this into a little time of repentance, a time, a a bit of a prayer meeting. And I loved, again, 362 people last weekend. My sin, oh, the bliss. Not in part, but the whole. I'm going to repent because that needs to get washed downstream. I'm not going to carry that anymore. So right here, right now, can you close your eyes? Can you open your heart? Can you begin to speak to Jesus from your own spirit? Some of you know habitual sin. You know things you've been, you've been carrying multiple storylines. And it's getting exhausting to try to keep up with the story you've been telling. You can't even keep up. What you refuse to repent of remains with you when it could be nailed to the cross. Give it to Jesus today. He'll sink it in the grave. So right now, just it's simple. I'm sorry, God. I was wrong. Please forgive me. God, I repent to you for hating that person. Yeah, they jacked me up. But, but I own that offense. I repent for hating that person. God, I repent for impurity and lust. God, I repent for greed. God, I repent. I don't know what it is, but all of us have things to lay at the foot of the cross today. Right now, would you begin to use your words? And now would you just begin to call on the name of Jesus? Scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when I don't know what to pray, you know what I pray? I pray, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, heal me, and Jesus, cleanse me, and Jesus, wash me, and Jesus, make me like you. Jesus, wash me in the light. Friends, call on the name of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I trust you. Would you just begin to say these things? Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I depend on you. Jesus, I lay my life before you today. Jesus, I'm coming home today. Make me like you. Friends, I'm here to tell you the good news of the gospel is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. So today, hear the good news of the gospel. You are clean in Jesus' name. I want to invite our communion servers to come down. And we're going to come through the room. If you're physically not able to, just tap your neighbor and say, bring me an extra. They'll be happy to. But we're going to worship. We're going to sing it as well. And when we get to the second verse, my sin, oh, the bliss, let's just tear the roof off. Repentance is a joy word. Let's sing it to, to the depths of our being today. And then in just a couple minutes, I'll come back and we'll receive communion together. Let's come forward as we worship.